Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. If you enjoy listening to Chorology, then I need your help. Here's why. I create Chorology by myself on a shoestring budget, recording and editing every episode in my tiny closet. How's that for irony? That's where you come in. Will you help keep Chorology on the air by supporting it financially? By tipping as little as $1 a month, you can help me improve and keep making Chorology every week. All you have to do is jump over to MatthiasRoberts.com support to make a pledge and listen away. Hey friends, this is Matthias Roberts, and you're listening to Chorology, a podcast on belief and being. This is episode 29. Y'all, it's the end of the year, and we're doing something a little bit different this week. Uh, I reached out over social media a few days ago and asked for y'all's favorite moments from the first season of Chorology, and over the next two episodes we're going to be revisiting some of those favorite moments, as well as a few of my own. Uh, so yeah, uh, it's the end of season one, and like, my goodness, what a year it has been. Uh, when I started this podcast back in May, I had no idea what I was getting into, and I sat out thinking, I, I sat out thinking, uh, that if I had even like 50 people listening to the show, then it would be worth it, and my goodness, over this last year, like, thousands and thousands of people have tuned into the show, Uh, and it has been so much fun creating every episode, uh, and I'm super excited to see, uh, what season two has in store, uh, really fun things in the works, some great guests on the books. Uh, so after these two wrap up episodes this week and next week, there's going to be about a two, two week break, and then we'll pick up again with season two, uh, the second week of January, um, before we jump into the, these top five favorite moments from the first half of the season, uh, a couple quick announcements. Uh, first, uh, the Gay Christian Network Conference is coming up at the end of January, uh, and registration deadlines are coming up. Uh, so if you want to go to that, I like y'all should go. Um, <laughs> it's going to be in Denver this year. Uh, so many people who have been on the podcast uh, over this last year are presenting workshops, uh, and if you're looking for a conference full of queer people of faith, uh, definitely check out GCN. Uh, I remember my first year going to GCN uh, in Portland, like, uh, what, four years ago? Uh, I, like, literally just sat and cried uh, because of how beautiful it was to be surrounded by over a thousand other people who are like me. Uh, I had never had that experience before of worshiping and looking around and seeing so many other queer people uh, who have such similar stories 
and yet such different stories. Like, ah, my goodness, uh, it is a beautiful experience. Uh, So head over to GCN's website, uh, get registered, and I hopefully will see you all there. Uh, second, uh, all four episodes of my series with that Christian vlogger are up over on his YouTube channel. Uh, the third episode is my favorite. And while those videos may be somewhat frustrating to many of us who've been in this work for a while, it's been really cool to see the response from Justin's audience, who doesn't have a lot of exposure to queer Christianity. Uh, so definitely go check those out over at that Christian vlogger's YouTube channel. Uh, maybe share them with friends or people who are maybe just starting to get into these conversations. They're, they're kind of tip of the iceberg conversations. Those things that I think we often get frustrated talking about. Uh, and yet, they're still really important conversations to be having with people. Okay, uh, let's go ahead and dive in. This first moment uh, is one that has stuck with me ever since we first recorded it. Uh, in episode two, uh, poet and storyteller Lauren Ileana Sotolongo, she shared about the idea of liturgical space, uh, which is an idea that she borrowed from Pete Rollins. Uh, these are spaces that are performative enactments of a world you want to see in the present. Uh, they're temporary zones where there is equality, where people have voice, uh, and Lauren tries to create these liturgical spaces through the means of creativity. And I believe she created one of those spaces for us uh, in the performing of her poem, Confessions. Oh, goodness. So another space that I've noticed where you where you kind of bring these this liturgical space uh, is through your writing, through your poetry, uh, your blogging, uh, your Instagram. Uh, and it's something that I know I personally like, I love following your Instagram and reading your poetry. And it's definitely yeah. touched me uh, multiple times. I've read something I've just have, like stopped and like, Oh my gosh, like you're putting <laughs> words to pain or, or mm. grief or, you know, whatever it's touched me. It's been amazing. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I was wondering if you'd be maybe willing to read some of your poetry uh, and maybe talk a little bit about what it's like as a creative act uh, to Mm -hmm. kind of bring these spaces about. Um, Sure. Yeah. And I guess just to preface um, before I read the, and I remember you messaging me that day and saying, you know, that you appreciated the words and it's just like the insecurity in creating anything is so real. Um, And, you know, and the insecurity in like, in, in being oneself is, is very real and deep. And I feel like that's an extension of any sort of creativity. You know, when you're creating something, you are extending um, a really bare part of yourself to someone or like a group of people. Um, and with social media, we've seen this, like just, you know, everyone's doing it in different ways, uh, which is really empowering and awesome. And yet there's still that deep insecurity on the backside of it. So um, it's, it's been really hard. The process of sharing is very interesting for me because, um, there's always that deep insecurity in the back and, you know, as humans, we want to be regarded and, and, uh, affirmed and all these things. And that doesn't always happen and it's fine. You know, like that's also fine, but it's hard, <laughs> um, because it's like, here's a piece of, you know, 
what makes me bleed or, or laugh or, you know, all these things. And, and I, I'm giving it to you to hold, like, will you hold it? And sometimes it's not held and sometimes it is. And, um, so yeah, the process of creating in and in and of itself is interesting because it's so vulnerable. Um, but let me, okay. So I'll read, I think I'll read my, um, my initial coming out poem, which uh, I wrote. So I felt the need to publicly come out just as a, because I write a lot and I was kind of editing that out, I felt quite a bit. Um, I thought, okay, I need to publicly do this just so I can put it in my writing and people aren't, you know. Right. Just so, it's um, so yeah, this is that one and it, uh, it's called Confessions. Gay Christian. This poem went from eight pages to one. Gay Christian. I'm the opening joke for both the sermon and the bar scene. They're only one. See, it's hard to engage every part of you when all the people and ideals that feel a part of you are not only running from each other, they're trying to crucify one another into spiritual and political history. See, call me gay Christian, but I will not leave your churches or dinner tables or bar scene to have my back painted briskly with generalizations about this lifestyle. This lifestyle is not your caricature to paint as if this lifestyle was just something I decided to have for breakfast one day. But my love isn't a McMuffin or stack of pancakes, and my faith will always define my identity. But please understand that my sexuality isn't a switch. It's more like a pulse that beats until something goes wrong. And I'm sorry that to you, I am something that went wrong. But I am not something for you to isolate and contain as if your own adultery isn't more shame than me going on a first date. And I may not be a saint, but I still want children and a family someday, Christians, family, Christians, I'm not asking you to agree. I'm only saying that six verses in scripture does not make you my savior or my doctor. It makes you my family. Christian, gay Christian, LGBTQ Christian, let's just call us human. I am the pastor's opening joke, but I have the privilege to step out. And so I must because an entire community is being silenced with Polywana Leviticus 2013, and I'm done stuffing my soul with things that others choke down for me. And though I am terrified, make no mistake, I am terrified. This is now irrelevant, because I can finally see the orange haze of your skin at dawn. I can finally see your smile warm and shining. And now everything I once thought dead can finally rise. So I'm stepping out. I can finally rise. We are stepping out. Family, rise now together. These chains of shame are not our family history anymore. Like my goodness, I still get chills when I hear that poem, uh, and it, it's so beautiful. I go back and listen to it because I feel like she captures an emotional experience of being LGBT and Christian uh, so well. I, I love, I love that poem. 
This second highlight is one that so many people reached out to me and said that this episode was actually their favorite episode of the entire season. Uh, The very next episode, episode three, with critical race theorist Dr. Robin D'Angelo. I was so excited when she agreed to join me. I had reached out to her, sent her an email, uh, just like to her like info email address and was like, Hey, like I have this podcast. I'm interested in having a conversation about LGBT identity and intersections with critical race theory and racism. Uh, didn't really expect to hear back from her. And she was like, Hey, yeah, like I'd love to have this conversation, but literally the only space I have open for the next two months is tomorrow morning. Uh, <laughs> And so I dropped everything and recorded this episode with her. Uh, and, and and this clip really kind of explores those intersections of being marginalized as an LGBT person and also the fact that we can still marginalize others and that racism still exists within all of our spaces. Yeah, that highlights uh, a piece that I feel like is so common, especially I've noticed in the queer community of where we identify with one specific marginalized identity and assume that because we hold that identity, we can't marginalize others or we can't be racist. We can't, we're, because I'm gay, I am a good person person i i know what it's like to be marginalized i know like blah 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 when that is related in yet entirely separate issue at the same time yes and interestingly where we are in dominant culture so where we are in the norm where we are swimming with the current in the water rather than against it so as queer people we're swimming against the current But as white people, we're swimming with the current. And one of the privileges of swimming with the current is that you are not reduced to to that identity. You get to be an individual, right? And so that becomes something to which you feel entitled. It is a very precious ideology of dominant culture. Now, where you're not swimming with the current, you're always labeled. So you're always going to be the gay guy. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and you, but not the white guy, right? And so one of the one of the ways that we get our backs up, and again, as you'll notice in people's white people's responses to what I'm saying, is that I'm challenging individualism. I'm actually not granting white people individuality. I actually am, yes, I want to be really clear to all your listeners, I am proceeding as if I could know something about you just because you are white. And that is because we live in a society together that conditions us together. I doubt any any queer identified person would deny that gender socialization is profound, right? That it, that's what it's all about is this that binary and how relentless it is. And so perhaps we feel we can say some general things about cisgender people or about heterosexual people and what they're able to take for granted regardless of other aspects. But it's very difficult when we want to apply it to ourselves. 
So I want to say that about um, individualism. But a really key learning for me was that I had spent my life thinking deeply about how I had been oppressed, right? Because I was raised female, Catholic, and poor. So what are the messages of those three identities? Be silent, be subservient, suffer, martyr, invisible, disappear, do not use your voice, do not question authority, right? Those, those are deep messages I got as a little Catholic girl. Uh, now, those, those messages set me up beautifully to collude with racism because they're going to keep me silent they're going to keep me from avoiding conflict. They, keep, they have kept me in my life very focused on my outrage about those things, right? My, my in sense of injustice about patriarchy and sexism, you know, and classism. And I could tell you so much about how those things work, but never, ever had I examined whiteness. Or, or my ability status or, right, any of those things. Um, and so what I've come to realize is I, I'm not less racist because I was raised in any of those ways. I learned my racial position differently than a white middle-class female learned hers, but I still learned it. And I realized as someone who came late to academia, again, grew up, grew up in poverty, didn't go to college till I was in my thirties had no idea, you know, it was just a foreign culture to me. And now I'm in academia and, you know, I have a sense of an imposter, you know, deep inside me. I'm a very accomplished within academia and yet inside, you know, you're like, okay, day late and a dollar short. Right, right. right. <laughs> um, and you sit, I've sat there in those faculty meetings where, you know, it's almost all white always. And we're discussing something, and it's so clear to me that there's there's racism in how we're discussing it, or the impact of of the decisions we're going to make is, you know, and that there's there's a whole perspective missing, right? And yet I feel really intellectually inferior often in academia, right? Based on my internalized sexism and my internalized classism. So I sit in those meetings in silence, even though I'm noticing racism and I'm feeling unsettled about it. And my silence really is coming from a place of inferiority, right? It's not coming from a place of superiority. And yet I had to step outside myself and ask, well, how is it functioning? How is your silence right now functioning in this room? Oh, my God. <laughs> You're colluding with racism. You're maintaining white solidarity. You're going to look like a team player and you're going to get ahead precisely because you're not challenging racism. And, and that is not acceptable to me. I have gone back and listened to that episode with Dr. D'Angelo multiple times. And every time I go back and hear it, I feel like I learned something new and am, am convicted about other new things. And there's so much in that episode, episode three. Uh, and I think, especially for those of us who are white, 
uh, her work uh, and the work of so many others uh, in, in in that episode show notes uh, up on my website. There are a lot of resources there. Uh, really important things for us to work through. Uh, and this next this next highlight uh, ties into that a little bit uh, with Michael Vazquez when he gives a little bit of like a mini sermon uh, in the podcast uh, around the idea of how our faith must lead us towards justice uh, and what redemption and reconciliation actually looks like. Uh, this is from episode six. One of my favorite passages from scripture um, that that I'm doing some work with right now, um, some more work with now is Luke 7 um, and Jesus' interaction with um, the centurion. And it's a story that like we see pop up in several different texts, like seven different uh, uh, gospel stories, but there's a particular difference in the way that Luke tells the story. And so it begins with um, the elders of the community approach Jesus first and um, the elders come to, to Jesus like this man, this centurion, right? This Roman man that represents oppression, that represents empire, that represents everything that is wrong, going wrong in our community right now. Uh, he built us a synagogue. Like he, he did something for us, right? Like, so can you listen, like, can you hear him out? Can you hear his request? Can you, um, can you help him? Right. So there, there's this way in which this, this particular centurion man, um, his faith, right, we often talk about like, oh, well, he had great faith, and so Jesus healed his servant, right? But what we see in Luke is that his faith wasn't just this like boxed-in situation, like, I believe in Jesus with all my heart. Like, his faith led him into the work of justice, uh, which led him into the work of like, I have this power, I have these resources, um, and I have this privilege, but here's this community that is being oppressed by the very people that I represent and the very people that I'm a part of. I'm, I have to do something different, right? So he builds them a synagogue, right? He builds them a house of worship, right? With the people that could not worship, he builds them a place to worship. And that, that's a powerful image, right? I think if um, do some loose interpretive work with that, like who's going to build a synagogue for queer people? Like who's going to build a synagogue for queer people of color, for trans people, for, for people on the margins, right? And it, here is this individual with power, right, that says, my faith has led me to a place where I will do the greater works of Jesus by building a synagogue, which is so, so simple, right? It's not going to Mexico for a week for spring break to go paint a church. It's like some real work. It's some real investment. It's real commitment. You're saying, I'm going to build you a place of worship that does not look like my place of worship. It doesn't look like the temple that I worship in. Um, it doesn't look like what I want it to look like. I'm going to surrender my power, my privilege, and just give you the resources to do it. And so Jesus sees his faith and is like, well, damn. Now let's talk about your servant right now, because we got like, all that. So like, I ain't got to teach you a whole ton right now, but your servant's sick. So let's, let's, let's work that out. And, and so I've seen students, I've seen some of my alumni lean into what it means to be like that centurion. Right. So yeah, white people get to be like, a part of the redemptive story too, right? Like I just, just to be clear, like we, we all get to participate in the redemptive story and whether that's in the conversation about sexuality or race or uh, any of these like difficult contentious issues, we all like, whether we're the ones in power or the ones 
um, that are oppressed, we all get to enter into the story of Jesus and experience redemption and reconciliation. Um, but it takes work, right? Like we just don't like, hey, I forgive you. It's all fine. Not great. Like let's hug. Reconciliation. Hashtag freedom. Like that's that how that's that's um that's some nonsense. <laughs> Y'all, whenever people say that queer people can't read scripture well or that we can't interpret scripture well, I think about that episode and I'm like, y'all haven't met these seminarians. Like, my goodness. (laughs) Uh, This next highlight uh, comes from episode eight, uh, nine, uh, episode nine. No, episode eight. Episode 8 with Rosemary Jones. Uh, A lot of people also mentioned that this was one of their favorite episodes from the first half of the season. Uh, And her work around bisexuality. Uh, Rosemary is bisexual, but in a straight-passing marriage. And in this clip, she kind of explores uh, what that means uh, and what led her to come out as bisexual. Um, I I was reading through some of your old blog posts um, and found one that you wrote on on Modern Kinship last year of of where you actually kind of talked about this and and you write like how much easier it would be to simply embrace my straight privilege in quotation marks. Uh, My child could attend a religious school if I wanted her to. I could serve in a church that would otherwise hold me back, but it's not so simple. The thing about straight privilege for me is that it's not privilege. It's being put back in the closet over and over and over again. And unless I specifically spell out my bisexual lens for people, there's always a part of me that remains unseen. The whole of me is not visible. Preach. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk about that a little bit, because um, I think when Dr. D'Angelo said that, um, uh, my immediate response was just to kind of nod along. And then as I was editing the podcast, I was like, wait a second, like, <laughs> this sounds a little bit like by erasure. I- I'm wondering if you could talk about like, what is by erasure? Um, and what, as, as a woman who's married to a man who identifies as bisexual, like that adds some complexity. Um, right. I would love, I know that's, I just, that's a lot. (laughs) There's a lot of questions in there. Yeah. Um, I, uh, forgive me if I ramble a little bit. (laughs) Please do. Please ramble. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, yeah. And I, I think that I'm particularly sensitive to those kinds of things because I did spend the first like seven years of my marriage essentially in the closet. Right. Um, I mean, you know, Josh knew about it and he was really cool with it. Um, I think if I can tell like a little bit of an example of kind of like what life was like during that season. So living, um, you know, as a straight woman, we were going to an an affirming church where I served at whatever capacity I wanted to, um, was in, you know, various positions of teaching and leading small groups and in children's ministry and the whole nine yards. Um, the majority of both of our families on both sides are not affirming. Um, so just, it was quote unquote easier. And I say easier loosely because it was easier in a social construct. It was not easier for my mental and emotional health. So what would happen was like, we would go out for coffee, for instance, and I would think our barista was cute and I just would fall apart on the inside. I mean, I don't know if this is the same thing for anybody else who has spent a significant amount of time in the closet (laughs) and from the evangelical background, 
but you just wrestle all of a sudden with this, like, why hasn't God healed me of this? Like, you know, super evangelical, this is demonic oppression. Uh, I mean, all of these, like, really, really dysfunctional thoughts swirling around in my head just because I thought a barista was cute. And so I would, like, stifle this and hold it inside for weeks and be in this cycle of like anxiety and depression and self-loathing. I was thinking I was going to ruin my marriage. What's wrong with me? And then um, finally would like find the courage to tell Josh what was going on in my head. And he was like, okay, yeah, I, th- I, I think I remember that. Yeah, she was cute. What's the problem? Oh. <laughs> you know, <laughs> totally non-issue. Um, and this just, this would happen over and over again for seven years. And I just remember one evening, like we never directly talked about it. I never identified with the B word, um, but we were sitting, we always talked around it, you know, so we're sitting on the couch one evening and uh, again, having one of these talking around it conversations. And he just kind of like, sat me down and grabbed me by my shoulders and looked at me in the eyes and he's like I love having a bisexual life and for me like the dam just burst and all of a sudden I felt like I was allowed to be honest with myself and honest with those feelings and honest with my husband and there was no it was such a non-issue and so I think for me, when I hear people, and now I'm I'm all for self-identification. So if somebody wants to identify however they see fit, awesome. I think sometimes the problem is that can be misinterpreted into saying, oh, well, everyone, since you are partnered with the same gender person, you must be a lesbian. Since you're partnered with an opposite gender person, you must be straight, needs to identify based on the identity of their partner, right? And I think for me, since I carried that burden for so long, and I know how destructive it was, I'm just not willing to do that. I'm not willing to go there again. We go on to talk about in that episode about how often and easily we identify people's sexual orientations based on their partner. uh, When in reality, so many people are actually bisexual. Uh, That's episode eight. It is so good. Go listen to it if you haven't already. Uh, This final highlight comes from episode 15 uh, with Gabrielle O'Neill talking about some hard stuff, uh, mental health, uh, substance abuse, uh, the importance of doing self-work, and all of those things tied together within being a queer person and a queer black woman. Uh, this clip, I think, is just so profoundly important uh, because Gabrielle talks about a lot of those things that we don't really like talking about, and yet we need to. In in thinking about, for people who are listening, um, who do have mental health diagnoses, who Mm -hmm. are struggling in some of these places of substance usage or suicidal ideation um, who are who are trying to grasp on to reality or life mm-hmm. or um, what what would you say to them as someone who's who's walked this journey a little bit um, how do you talk to people who are looking for that reason to hold on I think if I'm speaking to someone um, with a 
mental health diagnosis, um, a very, I think a key thing to that is acknowledgement and acceptance. Like I remember when I was first diagnosed, I was like, there's no way, there's no way I'm bipolar. Um, I'm not broken. I'm not defective because of the stigma around it, that there's, there's something wrong with you if you have a mental uh, health diagnosis. Um, so I think if I'm talking to someone, it's, I'm going to ask like, how honest are you with yourself? Um, and have you examined what you need? Um, and how to get what you need and how to ask for what you need. I don't think there's any avoiding, um, having to be vulnerable when you have, um, a mental health diagnosis in the way that I do and many others do, because we are limited in a system and in a world designed for people who are unlike us. And so, um, there has to be an incredible amount of support, um, there. And, and, and for me, a a big part of that has been, um, learning how to ask for what I need and learning how to be vulnerable with people and knowing who to be vulnerable with. Um, and so I think on the mental health front, um, really knowing yourself, really knowing your needs, really knowing your triggers, knowing what environments will, um, will put you in a, in a bad or harmful space and what environments will contribute to your wellness, um, who will contribute to your wellness, what types of, uh, different, um, treatments, uh, do you need, do you need medication plus talk therapy? Do you need, um, something that's going to connect you to nature? Do you need to be more physically active? Do you need to, um, work through art? Um, or do you need to be involved in volunteering to advocate for yourself and for others? So, it's a lot of, uh, it's a lot of internal work. And I think that's one thing that we're not really encouraged to do in our society. Uh, we're encouraged to produce, to make money, to acquire things and assets. Um, but this, this, uh, thing of self-reflecting and really sitting, um, with yourself and exploring, uh, your, your internal world and discovering how to be your, best authentic self in order to output good into the world is not something that's hugely, um, uh, encouraged. And so I think, um, that's what I would say to someone with a mental health diagnosis is you really have to do the internal work and it's long, arduous, it's painful, it's frustrating, um, but it's necessary and the ability to be vulnerable with others, uh, necessary. I would say with somebody, um, dealing with substance abuse, um, you're not ever going to get sober until you want to get sober. I mean, I loved cocaine more than anything. Still do probably. Yeah, I still do. Uh, <laughs> but it's recognizing that, but is there something I desire more? And I think that thing that I desired more was, I wanted to learn how to love my family um, in a way that was truly sacrificial and um, and life-giving. And, and that meant I had to take care of myself, but that meant that I had to stop doing things that were actively damaging and destructive to my body and my brain. Uh, and so my desire to love them well um, superseded that desire for, uh, cocaine. Uh, and it's difficult. It's not easy. Um, sacrificial love is not easy. Um, and I think for, so I think for someone with substance abuse, also like knowing, um, what you can do now and, um, and starting there, um, 
environment is huge. I tend to not hang out in bars or around people who use drugs uh, because that's not um, that doesn't reflect my needs um, and desires for myself uh, internally. I want to stay sober, so I'm going to have my environment reflect that. Um, and I think also um, for people who use drugs, like understanding what is the underlying root um, or, or cause for that desire. Some people just like to um, have fun and it is recreational. Um, some people, as myself, um, was very much attached to my creative process. Um, I, I wrote better. I, was, I felt that I performed better as a musician. Um, I, I felt that I had an expanded consciousness. Um, and I think that too, like, um, or, and there are some people who don't want to feel anything, which also I came from that place. So again, doing that self work, um, mining those emotions, processing them, um, and being patient and compassionate with yourself. Um, and then as a queer person, man, <laughs> it's like all of those things compounded. And then that's, you know, kind of like my queer identity. It's, it's all of those things, like knowing myself, um, trying to not define myself by what, by my faith or defining myself by what I shouldn't be. Um, and since I'm still kind of grappling with what does it mean to be queer, um, and am I 100% comfortable with that? And I don't think you can accept others or love others or serve others um, or advocate for others if you don't do that for yourself. Um, so a lot of my work is reducing self-stigma and internalized homophobia and um, learning to bless the goodness in, in me that I see and to cultivate that. With that, that wraps up the first part of our season in review episode of Quirology. Next week, we're going to be going over part two, uh, the second half of season one. That's a lot of numbers all in there. I don't know if I can keep them all straight, but let's be honest, I can keep nothing straight. I was going to edit that out, but that was good. <laughs> uh, yeah, so tune in next week. We're going to go over five more episodes uh, five more highlights from that season. Then we're taking a two-week break and coming back with season two of Queerology the second week of January. So excited for that. Uh, so until next week, y'all, I hope you have a good week. Uh, and bye! Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. 
Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.